the reason why I was able to do a deal of that caliber by 24 or 22 is because I had spent 10 years of my life um, trying to surround myself around people that I wasn't exposed to as a child. And, you know, you got to, in order to do that type of business, you got to be surrounded around a bunch of winners. And it doesn't necessarily mean that all people that win or lose are good or bad people. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, what I'm saying is, you know, they... The people that I grew up with initially, they took life and they let life take them. And the people that I work with now, they take life by the reins and control their own destiny. So, the- Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. I am super excited today to bring Brian Lane to you guys. This is a man who at a very young age has figured out a way to break in the Beverly Hills market. He is breaking so many norms, so many things that you think you have to do or whatever. Brian doesn't care about those things. He gets straight to it. We're going to start today's episode off with a $47 million deal, Brian, that you were a part of. And tell us, like, get us started. How old are you? And then tell us about this deal. So at this time, I'm 24. At that time, I believe I was 22, 23. is about a year, a little over a year and a half ago. And um, I had gotten, I had had the opportunity to work with a, um, a really well-capitalized family that was looking for a home in, from Beverly Hills out to really in the Beverly Hills area, Beverly Hills, Holmby Hills, Lower Bel Air. Um, that's what is considered the A-plus markets of Los Angeles. You could add in there Brentwood Park and um, the Pal- Palisades Riviera, but really Beverly Hills, Holmby Hills, and Lower Bel Air are the traditional areas that people spend, you know, north of $40 million. So their eyes were set on those communities. Um, they are a they are a tech a venture capital tech family. And we looked for about over a year and a half, I want to say, for a house for them. And that may sound crazy to some of your listeners because, well, you can't find a house after a year and a half. Well, at this at this level, at that level, it's very, the rarity is what you're paying for, right? The rareness of the flat lot area of the prime location, um, you know, the minimal road noise or whatever it may be, you know, they're, it, a house within a half a mile from another house could have a totally different uh, price per square foot or land value just based off of not checking all of the boxes, but some of them. So then once you get to the A++ market of the top tier assets that trade um, very seldom and are held, you know, they're really generational assets within a family. Um, once you get to that level, it's more like artwork. What is someone willing to sell it for and what is someone willing to pay for it? Um, because again, it is so scarce. And, you know, on that deal in particular, it had um, been redone by Adam Levine and then redone again by Ellen DeGeneres and, and their level and their caliber of work and the people that they bring in. I mean, it would, blow your freaking mind it's like walking through a sculpture it's hard to even cut you know it is a house but you know when you think of a house people are thinking of tract homes in the suburb this thing was like reclaimed it was only ten thousand square feet only that's still a big house right but it's not that huge especially for you know out through the midwest and whatnot um so it's about ten thousand feet so over 4700 bucks a foot which is a huge price per pound but again it was an acre and a quarter of mostly flat land still layered lot which created you know more of an atmosphere that you want to pay for um, because when you have a completely flat lot it's great and all but it doesn't necessarily give it the same type of experience so they yeah. paid so it let's, they, let's dive into yeah. i want to work your story backwards mm-hmm. your story is so powerful and if we started from the beginning i i just it would set a tone that would be crazy i don't want to end on that tone as opposed to start so let's walk it back 
$47 million deal. You're 22 years old. How in the world do you get in a position to do that big of a deal at that age? Well, it's hard not to walk back to the very start because the reason why I was able to do a deal of that caliber by 24 or 22 is because I had spent 10 years of my life um, trying to surround myself around people that I wasn't exposed to as a child. I mean, I, like I had mentioned before, the upbringing was so difficult and traumatic and I was surrounded by low lives who, I mean, there's no other way to call them, but losers. And, um, and you know, you gotta, in order to do that type of business, you gotta be surrounded around a bunch of winners. And it doesn't necessarily mean that all people that win or lose are good or bad people. It's not what I'm saying. Rather what I'm saying is, you know, they, the people that I grew up with initially, they took life and they let life take them. And the people that I work with now, they take life by the reins and control their own destiny. So, the, you know, it took about 10 years to be um, around very affluent, you know, like-minded, I guess you could say, individuals. And I spent a lot of my childhood focusing on um, finding the right mentor uh, because I, I know for a fact that if you ask the right targeted questions, you can cut down someone's learning curve to help you get to where they are a lot faster. So, I mean, like, that's you, part of the reason. How did come into your mind as far as like you, the people you hung out with, your immediate family was yeah. such a negative experience I'm assuming these people aren't teaching you, hey, go hang out with celebrities, go hang out yeah, with... Not at all, dude. And, you know, it was more like, I looked at these people, I was like, you guys are doing crack and heroin, you guys are fucking nuts. I don't want to say any other way. That's I maybe shouldn't curse, but that's the truth, you know? So I don't know. I You know, when you're born into that environment, I think that you're a portion, a product of your uh, environment and you're a portion of your personality. And I guess I would just have to say I was blessed with a personality that responded well. There are also a couple of people along the way that provided me guidance, but there is no one that's been as impactful to my life as the guy that I work for now, um, Bob Safai. So it, again, it goes back a little bit to the mentor aspect. Also, I was a young hustling kid getting in trouble all the time, wondering why I felt like I was maybe not book smarter than other people, but I had learned, I'd learned a lot of lessons from what I had grown up with. And, you know, I, I think you can either look at life as, a, or look at the trials and tribulations as a blessing or a curse. And I, from a young age, I looked into more as a blessing. And when you got to manage a, you know, heavily intoxicated uh, individuals all the time who are trying to beat you, kind of learn to work other people pretty easily so you know i played that to my advantage i also played the energy and the let's, hustle let's and dive into that. yeah so you're obviously it appears a heavy optimist in a world in this case full yeah. of negativity around you so you're already talking about manipulating your parents because of their you know influence of drugs walk us through like when did you become aware that you were in a really bad situation as a kid and then how did that develop to where you started to use that to your advantage i'll be i'll be completely straightforward so when i was up until like eight or nine i was really con really confused you know even up until i was 15 i was confused and getting in trouble but it wasn't until i was maybe nine ten eleven that i started maybe it was probably like more like 11 or 12 when i started working that i realized that most people don't live like this. This isn't the norm. You know, you, it's not the norm to get punched in the face by your mother every day. It's not the norm to be, you know, sexually abused. It's not what normally happens to people's families. And that didn't come until I started putting myself out there um, and exposing myself to other other people um, that weren't weren't similar to me. I actually got really lucky because I got expelled from my seventh grade middle school. 
for getting in fights all the time. I got expelled on the last day of school too. Uh, I'd probably been like five or six fights and I was talking shit and I don't know, you know, like I also didn't take anything. I was losing a lot of those fights, but I was not like, I couldn't stop, you know, uh, I was a smaller kid. And uh, so I, I guess that was the first kind of blessing that took me out of being allowed to go to private school or public school. I either had to go to a, a youth academy or go to private school. And there was a, a private Catholic school that I had actually been, I would take my younger siblings and just walk them to church on Sundays, just us, because it was better than being at home. And it was also like the saving grace for our feelings, you know, from what was going on. So it kind of helped it make a little bit more sense. And through those relationships that we had been going to church with these people, they're like, hey, we'll give them a shot to come to the school. And uh, they gave me a full scholarship day one because they didn't want to see me, and see me in a youth academy. And they also knew what was going on at home. So it was kind of like they extended a, a lifeline. And that's really what saved me. Had I gone to the youth academy, I would not be sitting in this office or selling this type of real estate. So I guess that was timing was part of it, of course. And then, you know, I started working when I was 11. I started to, you know, I would I have, this is another factor of it. I had si younger siblings. Okay, here's a better way to start. My older brother was 12, I was 10, and I had a younger brother that was seven. No younger siblings at the time. My older, my mother one night held my face into a pile of pillows until I passed out, or a pile of clothes until I passed out. And I'm nine years old, or eight, or something like that. And then I, I'm, and I- How were you interpreting that? Crying, <laughs> you know, like, what the fuck? Like, do you, you think know, she's trying to kill you? Like, yeah, what's, I think she's trying to kill you. Mind? You think you're gonna lose your life? There's no other way around it. You, you pass out in a pile of clothes from someone like suffocating you. You think you're gonna, you like, think you're dying. Um, but it wasn't. It was a normal thing. It wasn't. You know, it wasn't like out of the. It wasn't like it was out of the blue. All of a sudden, she became abusive. It was just that that was extremely excessive. Excessive. Donna, I'm on a call. No, I, I'm on it. Okay. Um, that was just extremely excessive, right? Um, so. Then, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought a bit. Um, so yeah, she held yeah. my face in a pile of pillows and this is kind of where it all started. Um, where we, she started getting in trouble for this stuff. She held my face in a pile of clothes or pile of pillows. I passed out. I went, remember coming back, laying in my bed, my brother and I share a room. I'm crying and he's like, oh, I'm going to turn her into child protective services. And it's like, no, we're, you would, we wouldn't do that. I just thought it was BS, you know? I thought he was saying that, just to say that. We said that all the time, but we never actually did it because you don't want to stand up to your mom. You also don't want to see your mom get arrested. So the next day, I get called in the principal's office. Sure enough, he turned her in. Um, they they arrested. They they took us into child protective services. Um, she lied and manipulated her way out of it, and then she sent my brother to a mental institution for calling police on her, like almost to prove a point. Like you do that, this is what happens. He was in the right. Everything he said was true. It was all real. So he after he goes to a mental institution for six months for her holding my head into a pile of pillows, which happens all the time. For him turning her in for shit she did to us. After he goes to a mental institution, she then kicks him out. At, when he comes back, she then kicks him out at 12 years old. So he's now I'm the oldest guy in the house. I'm 10 So now years at this old point, now. are you thinking, oh my gosh, like I, I can't even report her because it'll make it worse. Yeah, not possible. It's not going to matter. Yeah, not possible. We always knew. Um, she had this saying, and I can't remember verbatim, but um, 
if I, basically if you ever tell anybody, you'll be in more trouble than if you than if you didn't tell anybody. So you kind of knew what was you you kind of just were on the edge of your seat. At the same time, I also love my mother. It's my mother, you know. And I, I had seen she was a stripper my entire childhood, and I had seen her come home from being jumped by eight people, nine people in her face, just brutalized. Or you know, her father raped her when she was five years old, and she got addicted to hard drugs by the age of thirteen. So I had a lot of empathy for my mother. It doesn't mean that the 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 path that she was on didn't need to be broken, but it, I still have empathy for the, for the, I have empathy for the pain that she had endured, endured and still does to this day. Um, so, you know, now I'm 11, 12, 12 years old. My brother's kicked out of the house and I have two younger siblings born in a year and a half. And immediately I just felt this need that, you know, we were changing their diapers. We were feeding them. She was incapacitated or on the porch smoking cigarettes like she was non-existent you know so and if she was she was beating you so she'd rather you'd rather her just be non-existent so we're changing their diapers and feeding the younger siblings and but we have no money to even buy diapers or food or any of that shit so i went i took it upon myself but first i started door knocking to mow lawns and things of that capacity and then i translated that from a youtube video i'd seen where this kid built a stencil kit for re painting people's curbside addresses. And this is what really, like that was one of the biggest things that got me into real estate was going around the neighborhood, knocking on doors, repainting people's curbside addresses and this stencil kit. And I was making a bunch of money. I realized early on, I'm 12 now that I could leverage my um, personality and my ability to get people to like me within the first 15 seconds at the door. You know, and You're consciously aware of this at 12. Well, it's three years, right? So 12 to 15, I'm doing this. I'm slowly getting better at realizing, you know, it's like consistency. I consistently put myself out there and realize I can get better, be more successful at getting people to, you know, to accept the service that I'm trying to provide. So then I just thought, how can I up the price of the service I'm trying to provide? And door knocking for real estate, it's probably the most expensive door knocking you can do. That's kind of, that's, that's really where it came from. And I was in my, in my head has always been bigger than my body. So my thought was just up the price of the service that I'm providing. And that's when I got into, and then I got into real estate at 15, um, because in part, because I, a lady at a door told me I should do it. And then I thought, well, oh, Hey, I should do that. And, um, coincidentally, I would drive two hours away from where I grew up on the weekends at 16. I'd live in my car on the weekends, um, I'd start at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. I would have an open house at 1 p.m. Between 9 and 1 p.m., I would door knock every neighbor in the community, inviting them over to see what's on the market in their area. It creates a more of a friendly environment rather than asking them to sell. And they're also like, who the hell is this little white blonde kid smiling ear to ear, running door to door, showing these houses? This doesn't make sense. So then they get over there and they're a lot, their guards are down. You know, a lot of people look at being young as, um, a deterrent in this business. I think it's one of the biggest strengths that I've had because a 40 year old man walking up to someone versus a 24 year old man walking up to someone are two completely different um, feelings as that person. And that's just nature. You know, I'm less, I'm less threatening, um, but you can just, you know, make yourself seem less threatening, but have the knowledge to be just as threatening. Right. So how did you overcome the difficulty of door knocking to get these you know, paintings and like the open houses. I mean, you're, you're talking about a grown man's industry and yeah. you're 16, 15 years old. I mean, you're 12 when you start door knocking to do the stencil thing. 
Like, how in the world do you overcome that fear of rejection? It's harder to door knock now than it was then. And I, it, the reason that it's harder to door knock now is because then I had nothing to lose. I mean, I'm knocking on doors trying to sell a, a low-level service as a kid. You know, these people are just taking fond of me. It's a great service to provide. Don't get me wrong. No, everyone's curbside address looks like shit. I'm not going to lie. Most of them do. And the difference that it made was actually pretty great for a house for 20, 25 bucks. Um, but for the curb appeal, literally. Um, but, you know, in part of it, I was just selling myself and selling. I was just hustling, you know, so... I was more comfortable knocking on people's doors than sitting in my house waiting for something bad to happen. And I was also much more comfortable with cash in my pocket than to have no food on the table. So that was, that's most of it. So you're starting to do real estate. Yeah. You probably have no clue that what you're doing is not even legal, right? You're just after yeah. it. <laughs> we knew at that point. They told me. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Yeah. And but what started happening at these open houses? Were you having some success? Yeah. So, you know, again, like I said, I would door knock at the neighbors in the community, inviting them over to an equal playing field. And once they were there, I was just collecting their contact information and following up. So it, it was just simple as that. You know, have you considered selling your house? Uh, yeah, we've considered it, but we're not there yet. Great. Would you mind sharing your contact info? And I'll consistently follow up with you. And then it was a monthly follow up. So and they weren't at that point. I get more denied calls now than I did back then because they're like, "Oh, this kid's calling again," you know. So <laughs> it's funny. So I just played to those strengths. And at that time, I didn't have the market knowledge. I didn't have the understanding of how to evaluate what the underlying dirt of a real estate asset is, what improved values are, and you know what what the cost to improve properties are. I had no idea. All I knew was call. And you weren't doing this in some podunk area of the country. You were no, in the Bay is, Area, yeah. right? Yeah, Los Gatos, which is one of the most expensive neighborhoods up in uh, the Silicon Valley. Which is one of the most expensive areas in the country. Yeah, and I'm glad I started there, not in L.A., because I realized people up there value you off what you know rather than what you have. People in L.A. value you off what you have rather than what you know. And at that time, I didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm very glad that I started in the Bay Area. I find those people to be um, much more down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth people who want to give a kid a shot like that. So where does this take us? Yeah, it's a funny, funny question. So 16, 17, 18, um, you know, I started living in my car full time at 17. Um, I, I had an opportunity and I'm working in real estate full time going to going to. Well, this is after after high school. Here's a better explanation. Worked in real estate 16 and 17 on the weekends. I was living in my car during the week. I was going back to my house in the Bay Area or in Sacramento, two hours away. I got an opportunity to go to Baylor because of the real estate I had sold on a full ride scholarship. I had terrible grades in high school, horrendous, like below a two, five, two, six. Um, I took the opportunity with Baylor, at Baylor. So I didn't have another, any other option. It sounded like it made sense. And I got at the Baylor in Texas, went there for a semester, hated it day one, knew I was not going to stay there. Um, and then two weeks in the second semester, I made a decision uh, based off of reading the secret actually um, that I was going to drop out the next day and move back into my car and strictly focus on going to USC. And this is all because of the book, the secret, I swear. And, and I'm 17, 18. I started college at 17, but at this point I'm 18 and no one could tell me yes or no. Right. Whatever I want to do is what I want to do. No one, I didn't talk so to my mom in So what was the secret years. in the secret that led you well, the, to the USC? You can do whatever you want in this world as long as you have, um, the, the passion's one part. A lot of people have passion, but 
the unrelenting focus, like just relentless focus on one, one, one goal and one outcome. And if you can, in, you can visualize that lifestyle and you can visualize yourself there, you can get there because I really believe that you can view the goal, reverse every engineer, what it takes you every year, every month, every week, every day to get there. And, um, chances are you'll get there. And if not, the fork in the road will hit and, uh, you'll go, uh, go down a different direction that was much better than where you started. And I realized that really early on. That was from door knocking, right? So first I started door knocking for mowing lawns. Then it translated into painting curbs. I was making more money. Then I started pressure washing. I was making more money. Then I started selling houses. I was making more money. And I had already known the secret inside of me. I felt like I understood that. Um, but I had never seen it on paper. And the moment I saw it on paper, I shit you not, I dropped out of school the next day. It was so funny. And all, all the kids around me like, you're crazy. And I was like, yeah, I know. I'm, I've literally been telling you guys I'm crazy. <laughs> I haven't seen that. <laughs> like this is, this, my whole life has been nuts. Why would I not be like a little bit nuts? So, um, I, the next day, I swear to you, the next morning after watch, I actually watched the movie on Netflix. I didn't even read the book. The next day after watching the movie, I dropped out the next morning. Um, I moved back to the Silicon Valley with the one focus of being going to USC and selling real estate in Los Angeles. I knew I had messed up by leaving out to Baylor. It wasn't necessarily a mess up. I took it more as a learning experience. That's not what I wanted to do. I knew exactly what I wanted to do at this point. What I wanted to do was I wanted to go to why, USC. Why LA when you're in Los Gatos selling zillion dollar homes good question but there there isn't a school in los gatos that um has a network like usc does there is no usc in the bay area stanford's great but there was no shot i was getting into stanford they're all academia and i knew that usc had a sliver of their acceptance was off of merit outside of academics and that's what i was banking on so i'm a first year transfer and i'm thinking to myself i'm either going to get in after six months of living in my car and hustling real estate, or I'm going to get in after a year and a half, but there's no me not getting in. And that's just what I believe from the secret. Um, again, I swear. So I dropped out the next day. This is my, I'm in my second semester as a freshman, I just turned 18. I moved back to the Silicon Valley. I move into my car. I'm living there full time now, going to class from 7am till noon working from noon, which means just door knocking and cold calling, door knocking, cold calling from noon until 8 p.m. I'm at the gym from 8 p.m. until 10 p.m. And then I'm back in my car. This was the most lonely, painful time of my life, but the best thing I've ever been through in my entire life. Because it, it again, it was me just completely alone. Everybody telling me there's no way that you're going to get into USC. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, you guys haven't read the secret. <laughs> like an idiot it's probably like an idiot but you know i just truly believe that there was no freaking way i wasn't going to go there so everybody in your know, life I, at this point is screw-ups regarding yeah, your family um, what is driving you to this level of work ethic this level of passion this level of success you know i had this um i've always had this feeling inside of me like i want to live the exact opposite life that i grew up with and that's my my personal battle i'm I'm not doing this to impress other people. I'm more doing this to impress myself because if I become, when I become complacent, I start making bad decisions. And I know that I have addictive tendencies. And if I don't focus those addictive tendencies on productive things, um, then I, I will, it will go down a bad path. So for me, um, it's an inward battle with myself to make the opposite, exact opposite of the lifestyle I grew up with. And even that my life this year is not good enough to what my life will be next year. And it's already, look, it's fantastic. It doesn't compare to how I grew up, but it'll be way cooler at the end. You know, 
I think life is a a culmination of a bunch of experiences. I don't think feeling is BS to me because feeling comes and goes. But the experiences, when I'm on my deathbed, I look back and say, what what do I want to say I had done with my life? That's how I look at it. And that's what I'm going to do. So you pick USC because you're like, hey, a screw up like me, two point whatever GPA, the dude who was happy he was dropping out of school before now wants to get into USC. How in the world did you pull this off? Like, I don't well, think USC is just like running out there accepting people with. No, it's a top 20 school, right? So not at all. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you're right. It's a top 20 school. And this is what gets me most excited because I, I love USC and I'll donate a shit ton of money to them because they did something that I, for me that I couldn't have done on my own at the time. I knew that USC had, again, like a sliver. It was 20 years ago. USC was much more about the affluent kids that were coming to the school. Now it's shifted towards a lot of the kids attending the school are the top academic kids in the nation. I mean, it's a top 20 school now. So they don't accept as much off of merit outside of academic anymore. But I thought that I could, I thought like I had done some really special things. I've been through a really tough background. There's, there's gotta be a way for me to get in. At least I could envision myself there. I will force myself down their throat. And if they say no, they just say no, right? There's nothing I could have done about it, but I was gonna leave everything on the table. That's why I was working 13 hour days so that I, if, if I got in, it wasn't a financial reason I didn't go, right? And that those that type of mindset is what inevitably got me in. And the reason I think I got in is because, um, again, I, I was thinking every day, how can I get myself into this school? Um, I don't have the grades. I have some great real estate behind me and I had come from a tough background. So I went to every um, well-established individual that I knew. I had them write a letter and um, I FedExed each letter individually. It was about 20 letters. I FedExed them not in one package, but in 20 packages that the admissions office had to sign for. Because I was like, how can I get in front of these people? And that's really what got me in because I put 20 letters into 20 different packages that admissions had to sign off on. And once they read the letter, they were like, shit, like, you got to give this kid a chance. And I'm not trying to be cocky, but I got to be one of the best kids to graduate from the 2020 program right now. There's no way around it. Most brilliant strategies on school admission I've ever heard. You're combining the elements of sales and marketing in just exactly. a beautiful way. It's like you're going to see me. It's like, it's like you took the admissions process and made it like a social media process. Like I'm going to keep posting people um, and I'm going to make you sign for it. At some point they're like, dude, if we just let this kid in, I ain't going to have to sign any more packages. He's going to shut up. Exactly. He's going (laughs) to shut up. But you know, that's, I feel like who I am at the core. so, So brilliant. I mean, I'm just like astounded at like the knowledge that you had, the thought processes, the focus on people. Do you believe that you're, understanding of the value of human relationships came from the fact that you made your your real estate agent relationship through door knocking like how yeah did you know it, to totally, relationships totally. over education yeah that well that's a great point so one i didn't have the choice to prioritize education because i was an idiot you know <laughs> uh, second um i had this Okay, here's a bet. Door knocking is what got me into USC because I took these skills that I learned from door knocking, which is shove it down their goddamn throat until they can't breathe and they want you to take it out. They're like, okay, I accept you, right? Um, but that came from that came from the lessons that I learned growing up, right? So that's why I always tell people, you know, affluent kids, you can look at your life, your struggles if, as a you know, a marginalized kid or a kid growing up in poverty or whatever it may be, you can look at your struggles as a blessing and a curse. An affluent kid gets a tutor 
fed on a silver platter. They get a car, fed on a silver platter. They get allowance, fed on a silver platter. They don't ever have their back up against the wall. And I can run circles around any of those kids, but my eyes close because this isn't about life is not about um, how well you score in the SAT in the long run. Uh, it's really about, um, I think it's about having a lot of dedication and focus to what you care about and love and being able to overcome the failures and taking those lessons from the failures to have success and being consistent at it. So like, you know, those kids that got, you know, I mean, we've not gotten tutors, but I, I was, dude, I was beaten by a lady that I wouldn't want to be beaten by, you know, that you can't buy that type of uh, experience. You, you can't buy it. Their parents can't go out and buy someone to beat their kid and make him, make him a little bit more street smart. So to any kid person on your podcast, that's listening. Um, it, if you grew up in a really troublesome background, rather than looking at it as the pain that it brings you today, look at look at it from a lesson standpoint. Because again, it could be a blessing or a curse. And I swear to God, I'm not selling these houses because I, I'm selling these houses because of that shit for sure. So let's talk about that. So essentially, most people who go through traumatic experiences in their past or difficult experiences can leverage those if they're willing for huge benefits. If you had to go back, like nobody wants to be abused as a kid. Nobody wants to be in the difficulty that you were in, but it's also contributed to who you are today. If you had to redesign your life, how much of what happened to you would you pull out? I mean, I, there's no way I'd pull out any of it. I guess, I guess I'd pull out some pain that happened to other people. Um, that's the only thing that I would pull out. Because like I said, that, that time of me living in my car for, you know, almost two years by myself was the most lonely and excruciating thing I had ever been through. But when your back's up against a wall like that, you either fold or try to find a way out. And my, because of the secret, again, it's that, that book really is about focus and believing in it and putting your whole mind and effort towards really kind of one thing. And when, and Gary Keller writes a good book called the one thing, which is very similar um, and I wouldn't take any of it out because it, it's, it shaped me. I mean, I, I can't complain. I'm 24 doing this now. I, I would say more so is, are there things that I wish I had done a little bit better? Some bridges I wish I hadn't have burned, you know, sometimes at USC, I wish it had focused a little bit more. Yeah. You make mistakes along the way, but I wouldn't take a single bit of it out. I've got, I've been surrounded around a lot of affluent kids for the past seven, eight years. And I can tell you, um, the feeling that they have when they succeed at something is not the same as the feeling that I have. Um, because I don't think they can appreciate the, uh, the steps that it took to get there as much as I can. It's an appreciation thing. When you have something fed to you on a silver platter all the time, I'm not saying all affluent kids are like that, but when you have stuff fed to you on a silver platter, it's tough to appreciate the journey, which is really the destination only lasts for a couple of seconds, especially in my business where I'm selling houses. You get a check and it's over onto the next. It's about the journey of building those relationships to get there and the struggle along the way and, and the, you know, the anxious nights laying up in bed, not able to sleep. That's what makes a success so great. But when you, when you have some of the safety net at all times and you can sleep fine every night, it makes it hard to get up really early and bust your ass. So, I mean, again, grass is always greener. I would choose my position day and night over some kid that's worth a hell of a lot of money the day he was born. I mean, if I was him, I'd probably just be ripping drugs. I don't know how else you feel that level of, I'm not kidding. How else do you feel like that? You know, I feel like this through struggle, a consistent struggle. And I like being anxious because that's what I grew up with, you know, Which leads you me to a question. I know you're not a parent yet, but let's say when you're a parent or for the, those parents out there, 
How much difficulty and struggle do you think parents should intentionally inject in the childhood process to it's give a, their kids a max, maximal chance of success? That's a great question because I think about that all the time. So, you know, okay, spanking your kid. That's fine. You should be allowed to spank your kid, right? I think at least. I mean, the, how do you teach discipline to a younger brain and let them know, hey, you can't be doing this without inflicting a little bit of pain, something you don't want to feel? Um, I think people should be allowed to spank their kid. I'm not saying like, so I'll beat their kid. Hell no. But I, you know, I guess my answer to that question, you, I guess I've always battled this with my, in myself um, because I don't know if I want to have kids because if my kid was a little bit of a shithead, I'd get so annoyed because of how I grew up. I'd be like, dude, you didn't, I haven't seen anything, but then you got to, I, I think the maturity level in me has to understand that again, they're a product, of their environment, you know? So you can't expect your kid to be like you because he didn't endure the stuff that you went through. So how do you, how do you manage that? I don't know. I guess I'm just not a parent yet. I'm not ready to be a parent yet because I can't, I can't tell you how to raise a kid to make them out to a savage, you know, have that dog in them. How do you raise that type of person when they grew up in a really good background? I feel like that just comes down to their personality being that person because their environment's not conducive of a savage at all. Right. So if I have a kid, his environment is not going to be conducive of building a, just a kid that is relentless and won't quit. They just got to bank on their personality and then, you know, understand that they can't be you because they didn't go through what you went through. Yeah. So you get into USC, like what's that moment like for you? Oh my gosh. It was like getting a commission check. It was there and then it was done. And then you're on to the next thing. Kind of like, That's how <laughs> almost anything is, right? The, the feeling of, Oh my God, I'm in. It was great. Um, but it only lasts for so long. And then you got to figure out, well, how the hell am I going to pay for it? And all of the next steps of that, right? So, you know, I had wanted to go to USC because I wanted to be in the top frat. And I, want, I knew I could leverage those relationships from being in a top fraternity to build business. I was going to USC not, not to be, not to go to class. Like my plan was to barely go to class, go out a lot build a lot of relationships with affluent kids and be a residential real estate agent day one. That's exactly what I did. I never went to class, just did all that. And that was just, I just did exactly what I knew I was going to do. Cause I knew if I got into USC that I could brand myself as a residential real estate guy, make a shitload of friends, um, network with the families, build families of my own. So I was never alone again and it would all be great. And like, to me, it wasn't even about, it's not even about the money. It's about the relationships. Like I, that's it's totally about the relationships at this level. Cause the money will come no matter what, no matter what I was doing, I was going to make a shit ton of money. It's more about, it feels like point, a it's top more about gun like, mission. a family. Like you're essentially like, I've got to build enough relationships that I'll sustain in life before I fail out of this college. Did it feel like that when you were in it? Totally, totally. I mean, 100%. Like, especially as a real estate guy, you know, it's tough because a real estate agent is viewed um, as unsophisticated, you know, and throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. You might as well just be a cold caller in some people's eyes, you know, and to break that, that norm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to break that norm is, is that, uh, the ideology in someone's head is tough. Um, but I, you know, I really didn't even, I went to USC to be a residential real estate guy, but it, it's more about the relationships. I wanted a family. Like I wanted a family. That's what I, and I knew that USC was like a family because they're the, the Trojan network and the alumni, they're such a tight knit community. And I wanted a place where that I, I felt like 
even if you didn't know the person, they may have had your back a little bit because of the, the brand name on it, right? But furthermore, I wanted a family that I spent Christmas and Thanksgiving with. I wanted, you know, I, I choose my family at this point, and I don't even look at clients as clients. I look at them as family. I would I give them advice based off of what I would do myself. Would I buy or sell now? No. Would I, would, I, would I sell right now? No, I wouldn't sell right now. Would I buy right now? No, I wouldn't buy right now. Do you know how much business I've done in the last six months? Less than $5 million. Six months before that, $45 million. And it's because I was just honest with them the whole time. Those same people will probably do a crazy amount of business in the next six months, right? But it's just, for me, it wasn't about just about going there and making money. It was about branding myself as a residential real estate guy, but also building relationships. Um, so I had a place to go on Christmas and Thanksgiving and have families like that. That's what means more to me than anything How else. How in the world are you delaying income by obviously you're doing the right thing. You're doing the ethical thing. You didn't grow up in an ethical environment. You're scraping to get by. You're paying for college. How are you still able in your character and your moral fiber to say, I'll still put off income to give the person what they should get. Like how in the world does that develop? I, I don't know how to be anything but honest. And I sometimes get myself in trouble because I'm too, like, I'm too honest, right? Um, you know, I read something Jordan Peterson said. You don't have to tell the truth, but you don't have to lie. And that's very true, but I don't, I have a problem with just not, like with someone I'm incredibly close with and I care about, and that is providing me an opportunity to sell them a property that is beyond the caliber of real estate that I have ever been exposed to. I'm going to do nothing but have that person's back and be just completely candid, straightforward with them. There's no like even hiding the truth. I just tell them to it straight as hell. And the reason for that is I'm very much focused on longevity. I've always been focused on longevity. You know, these guys, once you get into their circle of selling a house of that caliber, you become their guy and you become their guy's guys because they don't trust many people. And, you know, another benefit from, my like my upbringing that I instead of looking at it as a downside, I look at it as an upside. Is I, I'm I'm really really candid and sometimes uncomfortably candid for people, um, but that's just who I am, and that's really actually played to one of the biggest benefits for me because I think a lot of people in my business are are just trying to get a deal done. They're just trying to get a check, and I'm I'm trying to build relationships that are lifelong. You know, I'll, I'll sell something to you here. I'll sell something to you in New York. I'll sell something to you in London. And the reason that that happens is because they trust that you're going to make sure the right outcome comes for them. And if any point you don't do that, then you're not that guy. And that's, that's not what I'm here for. I'm a longevity guy. And again, like that, it was when I was at USC, I was running around you're, just you're hustling business. I didn't. Family that you never had, right? Yeah, I'm choosing fa- exactly. I'm choosing the, my family, and that's that's what I, I mean. I te- I don't even tell people that until after we do the deal, and I I don't even tell my life story <laughs> until after I do a deal. Then you break someone. down and cry, and you're because, like, Dad. No, I don't want to. I don't want them to leverage it against me, right? Or I don't want them right, to look at right. it. Oh, I, I I'm insecure about it. Um, and once they do do the deal, it's always the same answer. Like, are you fucking kidding me? You didn't tell that because they always tend to wonder, like, why is this kid like this? He's so young. Um, and again, I I just. For, to anybody that's listening to this podcast that went through, whether it was physical, sexual abuse, or just a really tough childhood, I want them to know that 1,000%, if, if you find your passion, you get very granular about what it is. Look at yourself on your deathbed. Ask yourself what you wanted to say you had done. Spend a lot of time thinking about that. Don't, don't just jump to the first conclusion. And go and do exactly that. And at our, my age, be completely narrow focused on that. 
um, picture out how it is to how you can get there through actions every day, every week, every month, every year. And um, I, I guarantee you'll get there. Here's another funny example. I, when I was younger, I grew up on McDonald's and Little Caesars, period. That's what I was eating. And I was five at, at 15, I was five foot three, 210 pounds beyond obese. Like it's so obese. Now I'm like pretty ripped. And it was strictly, I got out of my household. I realized that, hey, most people don't eat like this all the time. So I shifted the way I eat, was eating. And then every day I was eating better. Every day I was going to the gym. And five years later, my body was completely different. That's how life works because I was passionate about something, consistent with it. And that's it. It's all, it's all you need. You know, you know, people say luck is preparation meeting opportunity. Well, success is passion meeting consistency. And that's, that's, that's the same. I don't know. That's how I look at it. Your childhood created a chaos for you that's really, really intense. A lot of times what they say is like if you have childhood chaos, like there's a degree of chaos you want to carry with you through your whole life to kind of match some of the things that you had in your childhood. Like do you notice anything in your childhood that you're still hanging on to as far as whether it be chaos or other things? Yeah, totally. I mean, this is a great, great example for you. Last night – I overate before I went to bed, ate way too much food because sometimes I indulge and I can't stop myself. I might, I might have eaten half a jar of peanut butter. I swear to God, that's like 2000 calories. That's terrible <laughs> for you right before you go to bed. Just horrendous. Um, and I ate a, a ton of ramen and I was guilty because I knew I shouldn't have been doing that. And I still struggle. You know, we make mistakes. And then as a result, I didn't get deep sleep. So then I had my, I could feel my nightmares that I normally sleep through and I don't remember. And then I had a really a part of my childhood. So it doesn't, you don't escape it, right? You know, it's never going to be gone for good. It's just a, a life is a roller coaster. And I just try to take the steps to do the right things. And I'm still battling the nightmares from it. I don't think I'll ever get rid of them. Um, but I'm not, I don't feel like I need to because I wake up. If I only get the nightmares when I overeat, both of those things bring me back to my childhood which I shouldn't be doing either of them, right? So I know when I, the consequence of when I make a mistake. And either way, every morning I wake up and I bounce out of bed. I don't know if it's because I'm scared of those nightmares or what the hell it is. But, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I do, I do like, I, I harness, here's a better way to say it. I believe that because of how I grew up, I am attracted to chaotic environments. I put myself in chaotic positions and I just chose for rather than the chaotic position to be banging drugs. It's putting myself in uncomfortable positions, talking to people who don't want to talk to me. That's what, that's the chaotic position I have now. Right. I find it as a personal challenge when I go in an elevator to start talking to everybody in the elevator and I won't not do it because I enjoy that. Right. I enjoy the chaos of where I enjoyed the anxiety of walking up to someone who has no idea who you are, does not want to talk to you. And getting them to like or talk to you within the first 15 seconds, that's fun to me. To most people, it's like, oh my gosh, I would freak out. Yes, I am freaking out. <laughs> that is why I'm doing it because I like that. And also the fear of regret is more painful. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. We have, the office building I work in, our floor is um, the top plastic surgeons are like a couple doors down here. So you get really famous people walking through here. Um, one of the first people I saw was Post Malone. And I when I was about to get into USC or not into USC yet. He had dropped the Stony album, which has congratulations and some of his 
classic songs. So I was I was like kid living in his car listening to Post Malone. Dude, this guy might as well have been God. I swear to God back then. Like I was crying when I it was, it was too good. Uh, and uh I see him walk outside and I'm like, oh there's no way I'm not talking to this guy. There's like there's nothing that's gonna stop me. So I'm walking with my boss's right hand guy and I was like I gotta go back and talk to him. It'll like the regret will literally kill me. I might have a heart attack if I don't talk to him. So that's part of it. The regret I'm scared of. So I you know I just walked I walked 20 feet away from him. I was like, hey, po-, he was with 10 for five security guards. I'm not gonna walk up to him. Like, hey, I just get him in at your time. And he walked, such a sweet guy, walks all the way away from the security guard, talks to me for like five, seven minutes. I'm telling him like, dude, you changed my life. You changed so many people's life across the world. You don't even know about it. I just want to look you in the eyes and tell you how grateful I am for you and know that there are fucking billion plus people who feel the exact same way because the music that you made resonated with them. And I told him about living in the car and whatnot. The dude starts tearing up because it was just honest. I'm not like trying to get business from him or anything like that. I'm just telling this guy how appreciative I am for him. And he has no fucking idea who I am. Um, And that to most people would be like, oh, weren't you scared to do that? Well, I'd be scared to do that if I was going up to him asking him to sell his house. I'd be a lot more fearful. I was going up to tell the guy, hey, I don't want to selfie. I don't want to fanboy you. That's not in my nature. I guess I kind of am fanboying you. <laughs> I don't want to fanboy you or, or selfie. I just want to tell you how much you meant to me. And that, I think part of the reason that, um, that, that, what, the reason I'm using that as an example is there was no, in, like, there was no ulterior motive. It wasn't like a, it was, um, a Machiavellian thing, you know, I'm only going to talk to him if I get the business out of it or anything like that. I think if you just go into life with positive intent, positive outlook, you can talk to anybody. And I, I don't think anybody has to be fearful of talking to anybody. They're a human being. It's not a, it's not that crazy and you can impact their lives as well. And that same conversation translating into doing business with the guy. And I didn't even mean it like that. And you've had identity shifts from your childhood to now, like, what is your process typically to, to shift your identity? Yeah, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it's just been learned through the adapting to, you know, people over time, whether it was the crazy crackheads I grew up with or the people now that I sell houses with, you know, I'm still the same kid though. Like, I, I don't even think, I'm just not. I'm just not a kid that's being beaten every day and sexually abused. I'm just now a more mature version of that kid who um, is surrounded around the people he wants to be around. Again, I, you know, I was telling you, product of your environment, the portion of your personality, I think my personality would have been one of the few affluent kids who really did something great or did something positive because I, I don't know. I, I, my head is way bigger than my body. I want it so bad that I can't breathe. So this identity shift that you're saying, I for the last 10 years, I've identified as a residential real estate agent. I don't even know if I've shifted identities much. I've just grown up. I've uh, postponed gratification. You know, I've gotten better at uh, choosing the long-term gratification than the short-term. I think that's the biggest sign of maturity. I don't know. Still working on it. Like last night, I couldn't help myself from eating 2,000 calories. <laughs> but I, again, I'm still like, I, I don't know. I'm not like, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a genius. I don't even think there's been many identity shifts. I think it's just more like I continue to make, I want to make my life better every day, every year. You can really look at it from a yearly thing that my life gets better, but it's because every day I was taking steps to try to make it better. You got out of the fire of, of your childhood, but you have younger brothers that were still in it. And you were telling me pre-call about 
realizing that your younger brothers had to go through the same thing. And then there, there was a intervention that had happened. Can you describe what had to happen after you left the house? Yeah. So I went, this is what now I just started at USC and mind you, I'm on top of the world, you know, I'm in a top fraternity having a blast. There's girls everywhere. It's a blast. Like that sounds terrible, but like as a young guy, you're like, dude, this is paradise, you know? But every night I would lay in bed and I had this, uh, I had this just terrible feeling because I was leaving my younger siblings at home. And um, I was concerned that they would grow up and kill themselves because not everybody responds the way I did. Um, I think this, the majority wouldn't respond the way I did. So, you know, having raised them up until they're about five and six, I felt this uh, terrible guilt all the time. Like I'm having the time of my life and then they're at home like getting physically and sexually abused by someone who is not the person that should be taking care of them. At this time, I didn't even know, you know, we didn't, we, I was I had all brothers. So we didn't talk about the sexual abuse. You just like wondering what the hell is going on, but you don't bring it up because you got brothers and you know, you don't, you don't know why I'm feeling this way towards my mother. You're just like, what the, what the hell is going on? Am I screwed up? Um, but you don't understand that she's actually doing it to you. Um, so, you know, I had a brother, the one who was three years younger than me, he would, he, or I have a brother. He was, um, my mother, he was about, he must've been 15 cause I was 18. She took him out of high school. He was living on a mattress with no sheets in a bedroom and was and the door was locked all the time. So he's literally a prisoner mattress, no sheets, bedroom, no school. He's 15 years old. So he's going absolutely crazy and she's doing it to, um, to like traumatize him. Um, cause he was, he, he's not as good about, um, working people. He's so direct and he would fight back and he, he was, he started fighting back. So she locked him up in a room for about six months out of high school. I mean, this is, this is straight prisoner shit. It's fucked up. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, so he's locked in this bedroom and, uh, he ran away to the gym. He ran, like, ran away from home and went to a gym and called me on the phone. He was crying. I knew immediately what he was going to say. Because we had never talked about the sexual abuse, but I knew, I just, like, knew exactly what he was going to say. And I started crying. I was like, fuck. I thought it was, I thought I was messed up. I thought I was like, attracting my mom, which is so fucked up. But I was like, what is, I, I, you know, knew what was going on, but we hadn't talked about it for 18 years. So then I start crying. And then we're like, oh, my God. I was like, well, you're never going back there because, you're never going back there, period. Just the question is, how do we get our younger siblings out of there? Because the physical things you can endure, the sexual things are the things that make you want to kill yourself. Um, so, you know... Say that again. You said the physical things are the things that you can endure and the sexual things are the ones that make you want to kill yourself. Yeah, because you're so confused, you know? It's like... It's not blatant, you know? It's not like someone's blatantly punching you in the face. And you can say, hey, they punched me in the face. This is where the pain is coming from. It's like, do weird things to you in the shower or touch you in a weird way. And make you, and you're like, what? Confused. You know, like, this is not how I'm supposed to yeah. feel. And I'm laughing about it because I don't cry anymore, you know? Um, so yeah, that's the truth, right? I, I literally just laugh about everything now because it is kind of funny that I'm here and that, that all that shit happened. Um, so he called me from the gym. We, I'm, I'm 18 at USC and I'm like, all right, this is it. She, we, we're, we're either going to tell her we're calling the cops or she's got to give us, she's got to relinquish care of our siblings to us or a right family in foster care, or we're calling the cops period. No other question. And she didn't think she's, 
she can't be alone either, right? Like she's a manipul manipulative, hardcore drug using abuser. She doesn't want to be alone. That's one of her biggest fears. So she says, no, 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 you guys aren't going to do it. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. And after six months of begging her, and I hadn't talked to her in two years, mind you, after six months of telling her that we were going to call the cops and her saying, no, we're like, all right, we'll call the cops. So we called the cops, told them what had happened to us. They pull our younger siblings out of school. Our, our younger siblings verify the exact same things. And at that point, it doesn't matter what we say. They're minors, right? So it didn't matter if we did or did not want her to get arrested. It didn't matter at that point because the minors had had shared their story and that's what happened. So they arrest her. They charge her with four counts of physical and sexual child abuse against minors. Um, and they, uh, she, it was, it was, it was tough because we went, it was going through COVID at the time. So the trial got delayed, got delayed, got delayed. And, um, and she inevitably got sentenced to 60 years to life in prison, which is screwed up. She could have gotten 15 years. So she got four counts, right? Um, they're either served consecutively. So, which is back to back or con concurrently, which is basically you just get one 15 year to life term. You'd be out in eight or you get four 15 to life terms, which is 60 years to life. Right. And, um, because everybody when you should have seen the trial, it's like a movie. It's me and my brother sitting on brothers, just me, my brothers, and our girlfriends. We're nine, we're 20, 21 years old, and my brother's 17, 18. We're sitting with our girlfriends on one side. On the other side is her father who raped her when she was young, never went to jail for it, never got in any trouble for it. And there are uh, a couple of her Bible thumping um, family members who believe that you can do anything and then go to confession and the Lord forgives you crazy um, but that's their thought process right it's legitimately their thought process and um the the judge was like you guys have zero remorse we're crying our eyes out we're about to watch our mom go to prison and he's like you guys have zero remorse you have no care for these kids you've left them out to dry and they're lucky to be where they are today and they gave her 60 years to life and it's like you didn't think she should be on the streets anymore i don't blame him so you know that was that that was tough because she's going to she, you know, she's going, the trial actually happened while I'm selling these houses, right? So it's like, it's kind of like a fuel to your fire. Um, I, I black it out 90%, 95% of the time, but it's still with you at the bottom of your core. And wanting to be the exact opposite of where I grew up and how I grew up was 99% of why I, you know, work so hard every day. And I find it as a personal challenge. And, you know, after that... After that trial and she got locked up, it's kind of like you just put the path behind you and move on. So what was the range of emotions you felt the day she got the sentence? What's the range of emotions you feel today, three, four years later? <laughs> you know, it was tough because the day of the sentence, it was hard because I had to look at her. And um, I had to look her in the eyes and, you know, I, my 17-year-old, my, my brother who was 18 at the time and I was 20, 21, um, you get to go up and say what you want to say, right? And I went up first, and I was like, I was like, I wouldn't be here in this in this position in life if I hadn't gone through that stuff. And that there's no way that was acceptable what had happened. And I literally just told them basically what I told you for about five seconds, and then I started crying and couldn't even talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, was, I talked for less than five seconds, and I just I'm 21. I just like broke down. I was like, I'm I'm not 
saying shit. Um, and then my younger brother went up, who was 18 at the time, and this was crazy. He looks at him, and he goes, he, like, says his two-minute-long spiel, so composed, and he's 18, and then he looks at my mom, he looks at his dad, who's my, who is my stepdad, and he looks at my grandfather, and he goes, fuck you, fuck you, and fuck you, and he just sat back down. I was like, damn, I should have planned it out like that. That was clean. <laughs> but no, I just, I just, I was just broken all day, and my soul was crushed, and, you know, my, that, you can, you don't even know what you're going through. I mean, it's like, like it, it's like an, I felt like an atom. My body was just, my chest just wanted to explode yeah. all day. Just like, it's just shaking and shaking and shaking. And then today, how I feel about it is, damn, she got what she deserved. And I, you know, I prefer that, you know, I'm happy to talk about my life story and share what had happened, but I don't ever want to hear from her or any side of that family, any of those people again, because that's not my life. I have a family, you know, like I said, I have a family legitimately. I have I have a, a guy, a, someone that I look to as a mom. I have someone that I look to as a dad. I have someone who I look to as a business mentor. And I have all of the friends and brothers that I could need. That's just, you know, I, I didn't choose to be born in that life. I'm just choosing not to be a part of that life. And you had to spearhead all this, right? I mean, the effort to go get your brothers out of that situation, you had to take time and energy and resources and effort away from the mission that you had at the time. And everything was kind of riding on you to have the backbone to to report her to get through it, and and so was it really at the moment where she was convicted where it was like, hey, mission's accomplished, and then there was just a, a breakdown. I got to tell you, it was you know I I wouldn't say mission accomplished because you're like you're still a little torn up from it, right? But after three years of going through COVID and waiting and waiting and getting the calls from the detectives every week and dealing with that. I wanted whatever way out of it I could, right? I want I just wanted that to be done and that part of my life to be over with. So I guess kind of in a way it's like missions accomplished, move on. And um, you know, I again I gotta I gotta thank my boss who's just like he'll be my mentor in life till the day I die, in my opinion. Um he he looks at it, he looks at me and he goes, Well, it's time to move on. And then we haven't talked about it again since. It's just totally true. <laughs> like it's just time to move on. <laughs> It sounds to some people like, oh, that's heartless or whatnot, but it's just really true. You know, like you, you don't want to, if you continue to dwell on those things, then you will likely succumb to them. And the way that I have, I still, I still think about them, right? I can't not think about them, but the way that I feel better is talking to you guys and sharing my story with other people. So I can hopefully enlighten some kid who's going through a similar level of, of struggle and help him make the right decisions to change his life. I got to tell you guys, this is my third podcast. Like I'm very new to this. As you can see, I'm not that good at it yet, but I'm very new. I'm very new to this, but you know, I really wanted to do this because I want to impact underprivileged kids to help them know that they can change the shift their mindset. They can spend a lot of time working on themselves and they can better their life and their future. And that, that this is that's what this is for me this is this for me is hopefully i empower some young kid and if i empower one or two of them that's it's worth all the time in the world i mean i know how bad i felt then i know how bad some of these kids feel growing up today i know how confused they can be and how distraught they can be and i just want to tell them look grab a couple self-help books bury your face in them think about what it is that you want to do when you're on your deathbed and just focus every bit of it on that and if you feel like you know, if you feel like doing something is a waste of time because it's not conducive of your out your your goal or outcome, then don't do it. 
and focus. Like I, my all my yes, or, I respond to everything. Do you want to do this? Yes or no is based off of whether it's beneficial for my one thing, and that'll probably change when I'm thirty, when I have kids and you cut, you slow down and you, you know X, Y, or Z. But not now. And any kid out there that's from ten to twenty-five should be solely focused on becoming the best version of themselves. You leverage the power of wanting to be the exact opposite of your circumstances as a kid. Is that a recommended strategy? Yeah, I mean, unless you're uh, unless you're really loaded, you know, <laughs> right. unless you're like really, and then maybe you might want to just become a monk in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of nowhere, because you want the opposite, right? Um, I I would recommend that strategy for anybody who is is a uh, very angry about their upbringing you know if you're very mad about it harness that anger to create life to be the exact opposite and you know some of those cases they might look back and be like damn the grass was actually greener but at least you can appreciate it at that point some of my mentors have a phrase they say the things that get you here are not the things that will get you there implying that the things that fuel us in life like these negative emotions as children can really get us far in life but there's a point where they no longer serve you have you gotten to that point yet? Like, has there been any recognizing of like, maybe the, the, the angst now that you're being successful doesn't fuel you as much or is it still burning totally, strong? Totally. No, no, totally. I've realized that uh, more and more. There's certain things that I think um, will probably benefit me for the rest of my life. And there's some of them that I got to, I got to work on because they're not benefiting me anymore. And you don't want them to become a detriment. By example, anxiety is a, crushing for me right and sometimes sometimes i think people go into the office just to be in the office like they just and i don't i don't i don't believe in that right so sometimes i'll get there's two sides of me one's like oh you should be in the office because that's like what the textbook tells you to do be in the office but i've never had anybody walk into my office and give me a deal period never once in my life so I actually find it more beneficial to be outside of the office, out talking to people, sitting at a coffee shop, whatnot, and do my work there because I'm exposed to the type of clientele and people I want to be around. So that's just a small example, right? But like, I don't know, I, some of it I need to lose because I'm really hard on myself. And I think I look, I look really down upon myself, with just, which is maybe not the best thing you could do but at the same time you know when i'm when i don't get up and go to the gym at 5 a.m when i miss a 5 a.m gym session and i beat myself up over it that's what makes me go at 5 a.m the next day so it's like if i didn't beat myself up i wouldn't necessarily do it i think i can't answer that question the reason i can't answer it is because some things work better for other people like there's no one fix-all problem uh, solution here brian this has been Tremendous. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and business. You obviously have shared so much about your life with us and you've been so vulnerable. So we super appreciate because anybody that's out there that's experiencing these types of things has a blueprint. They have a, that they can know like, Hey, I'm not defined by the circumstances of my childhood. I can go in a completely opposite direction. So if you're out there and you're struggling, do this one thing, write down, what is it that you want to be? Start taking some mentorship. Reach out to Brian. Start making steps towards your goal. Share it with somebody who knows so they can hold you accountable. Because freedom's acquired one action at a time. And if you take these actions before you know it, you're going to be living a life of freedom. So guys, thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next episode.